Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. In honor of Queen Elizabeth, last episode was focused on the contribution of jolly old England to the rise of modernity and the wealth explosion that we all benefit from. Was that planned? Well, no, of course not. I barely plan anything. But it seems to have been providentially ordered nonetheless. Today, we're following a bit on that same theme. We'll be talking monarchy, but we'll also be talking about republics and democracies as well. To help us along, we're going to be discussing some thought from Aristotle, Aquinas, St. Augustine, and of course, good old Plato. So, we're going to talk about these three main types and contrast them by talking about their various strengths and weaknesses. At the very end of the episode, I'll briefly lay out what I think is the ideal form of government, which is kind of none of these or maybe a combination of them. It began in response to a conversation with some friends who were insisting that the American founding was ideal, that our government structure was clearly the best, and nothing could really be laid out any better than that. I claimed that hindsight's twenty twenty. We have the benefit of looking back and seeing how it turned out. Maybe we could tweak a few things, make it even better. I don't think I'm any smarter than Rudolf Diesel, who created the diesel engine, but having owned three different diesel vehicles, and knowing a little bit about how they work, I can look back and I could draw up a better diesel engine. Not because I'm smarter, but just because I saw hundreds of years of development, and I get a better vantage point. Is that too hubristic? Yeah, probably so. But nevertheless, I think it's probably worth listening to at the end. So, let me give my best attempt first at framing the goal of government before we get into all the nitty-gritty of different government structures. Here's my best attempt. A good government makes it easy to be virtuous, difficult to be vicious, and so orders society such that those who enter it find themselves acting virtuously by default. While this ought to be kept in mind at the top level, we're going to hit some of the rubber meets the road stuff. Nevertheless, I wanted to point out from the top of the episode that what we are truly aiming at at the end of the day is God's kingdom come and his will be done. We want earth to look like heaven. No, this is not possible through merely human effort and certainly not through secular wisdom or hubristic attempts at utopia. Nevertheless, we can mirror natural law and divine law in our human law, though never quite perfectly. Law has the ability to curb our fallen nature and cultivate the virtuous life in our society. Evil, viciousness, vice will never be eliminated, nor can human institutions actually ensure virtue. They can't ensure it, but they can help. Again, the goal is to make it easy to be virtuous. Not mandatory, but easy. Make it difficult to be vicious. Not impossible. We don't want to live in a government, in a state where it's impossible to ever commit a crime, but it needs to be difficult. We want it to order society such that those who are in it find themselves acting virtuously as a default. There are many places where bribery is a default, but we believe that bribery is wrong. Um, There are plenty of places where corruption is the default, but we think corruption is wrong. We ought to order society such that virtue becomes the default mode of operation, even for people whose hearts may themselves be vicious. Ultimately, to power a transformation of hearts and not just exterior actions, the sacramental graces of the church are necessary. And one day I may do an episode on church and state. But suffice to say, the idea of separating them is preposterous. And for my American listeners, it's actually contrary to our founding. States in the beginning had state churches, for goodness sakes. Public schools were only funded if they taught the Bible. And that didn't stop until a court case in, I think, like the 1950s or something. And we're told that our Constitution was, quote, made for a moral and religious people. But I digress. All right. Um, Well, one more point of digression. An episode about freedom 
is bouncing around my noggin. So there's a lot to say when we're talking about the subject of government in regards to the role of human freedom, but we're going to have to table that one because that should get its very own episode. All right. Without any further ado, good old St. Thomas Aquinas, in his work on kingship, pulls heavily from Aristotle, and he makes a ranking. He believes that the ranking of governments goes like this. The highest, monarchy. Next, aristocracy. And finally, democracy. But he also admits that each one of these can go bad. It can have an evil twin, if you will. So the evil twin, and therefore the worst, is a tyranny, because the corruption of the best is the worst, and he believes that monarchy is the best. So the evil version of a monarchy is called a tyranny. The evil version of an aristocracy he calls an oligarchy. And the evil version of a democracy is called a democracy. (laughs) All right, so what are some strengths and weaknesses for each one of these systems? But I just couldn't resist sharing his ranking there from the top of the episode. Let's begin where Aquinas begins, the monarchy. This is a rule by the monarch. It's almost always through birthright, and it claims the divine right of rulership, and as such is often um, includes the coronation of the head of state by the head of the church. So it has a number of strengths, actually. One, stability. Having somebody who is going to be there until they die means that you can make long-term alliances, long-term agreements, and there is one person whom you are actually contracting with. As we saw from the reign of Queen Elizabeth, monarchs can last for a really long time, and they can be a key point of stability and regularity in your society. I would add, under this stability header, um, peace, peace through family connection. That's not possible in some of these other forms. When you have your head of state, the head of the military, married into another country's uh, monarchy, they're not going to want to go to war. Those people are family now. And as those family bonds become more interconnected through, say, a continent or subcontinent, as the case may be, like Europe, well, peace is going to continue because nobody wants to go and fight their uncle. All right, so that can be uh, that can be good. And I might hear you saying, but wasn't it very warlike? And the answer historically is actually not as much as you think. Um, as we'll see later in the democracy section, democracies are the most warlike of these governments. Another point in its favor, skin in the game. Now, if you're in a democracy, you can vote for, say, increased government spending for people like yourself. And who pays that? Well, maybe not you, maybe the rich, maybe any group that you decided uh, didn't have enough votes and uh, you could victimize with your voting. Um, Yeah, you don't have skin in the game for the overall long-term financial responsibility of your nation. That's pushed off to somebody else. But in a monarchy, the person who quote-unquote owns the country is the monarch. Not only do they have that long-term perspective, but if things go wrong, it's on their head. We know exactly who messed up. It's not distributed like in a republic or a democracy. It's not paid by somebody else and then endured by that person. No, no, the monarch is where the buck stops. So there's a sense of responsibility. There is skin in the game. It also seems to do a lot for the tragedy of the commons problem, though not always. Let me give you an example of when it does work. You may have heard the term the king's deer. The idea that the king owns all of the deer in the forest. At first blush, this might seem ridiculous, but the whole deer population can create a tragedy of the commons problem, where overhunting can mean that everybody over the long term gets less deer. And of course, states today regulate it in a very king's deer type fashion. Most states determine what a reasonable amount would be to keep the population low enough that it's healthy and high enough so that they're indeed numerous for hunting into the future. 
without some type of centralized ownership that looks to the long term, everybody would just kill all the deer they could before their neighbor does the same. It sets up an equilibrium which is not best for the long-term common good. So by having one person own it, the king's deer, as their own personal property, they will manage it in a better, more sustainable way. The same is true with fishing, the same is true with timber, etc. So you can solve this through regulations. You can also solve it through the market and private property. And that's a wonderful way to do it. That's my preferred way. But in the absence of these markets, with the absence of the ability to regulate, sometimes monopoly ownership in the hands of somebody who purportedly cares about the common good could be a reasonable alternative. Single vision and decisive leadership. As another benefit of a monarchy, we don't have to squabble over what we're going to do. One person can execute their vision, and sometimes even a bad vision executed well is better than a good vision executed poorly. And the decisive leadership is something that allows them to pivot quickly. They can adapt. We think of monarchies as uh, very difficult to move, very clunky, but in fact, with a single point of leadership, they can respond to things quite quickly. I would add that... um, Although the hierarchy is very clear, that doesn't mean that there isn't distributed power. There's principle of subsidiarity built into most all monarchies. And that's in the form of the nobility, where they get to be monarchs because the nobles are playing their part. And then the other classes are playing their part. So there's different responsibilities at each level. And then there's different um, roles and, uh, and powers which are distributed to each. So... For those who think that it it breaks subsidiarity, I don't think it normally does. Tyranny would, yes, but monarchy would not. Aquinas points out that a monarchy mirrors the order of nature, that just have bees, have a a queen. Um, We see most orders in nature. There is a, a single point of unity, a single leader that brings things together. He thinks that to the extent that we mirror that type of order that God set in nature, um, we'll be better off. And the final advantage of a monarchy is that it's really tough to bribe a monarch. They own the country. What are you going to bribe them with? So it can guard against some types of corruption. But that doesn't mean this is a perfect system. There are certainly some weaknesses. One, infighting in the family for secession. Uh, that's a big deal. <laughs> and I think we, we know from history that happens quite often and quite viciously. People kill their own relatives to ensure that uh, their kid can secede to the throne. Or people kill their relatives to make sure that they can get to the throne. I would add that bad monarchs stay in power for a long time. What if Queen Elizabeth was awful? What if she was a terrible tyrant? We would have been stuck with her for How long did she reign? What, like 400 years or something? We would have been stuck with her for that whole time. Luckily, she was a good one. I would add, as, uh, oh, what's his name? Lord, Lord, Lord Acton says, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And although they don't have absolute power, it's checked by the nobles and it can be checked by a constitution, etc. Nevertheless, they have a lot of power and they have a lot of unique power. So the human heart is, uh, is, is quite wicked indeed, and that type of power can turn it towards evil, turn it towards self. And finally, monarchies are typically quite cautious and conservative, because a monarch is living a pretty awesome life. Even in a poor country, a monarch still has a great life. So they're not really terribly interested in making life overall better, It's about as good as it's going to get. But they do really, really, really care that everything doesn't fall apart. So if you're on the top of the hill, you're not worried about getting higher. You're worried about falling down. So this can mean that uh, we're stifling invention. We're stifling the productive class. We don't want rival authorities. We don't want rival merchants who who could threaten the power of the king, for example. And that's a common story throughout history. I think we addressed that a little bit in the last episode, actually. 
So here's a few modifications which help to ease the, uh, the, the problems and the weaknesses section. One, um, make it a constitutional monarchy. Uh, that's really the number one. So we have a check against certain abuses and we have a rule under law. It's not a rule by a person. Instead, it's a rule by, um, it's a rule by uh, laws and that person executes those laws. So that, that could be good. Let me read a few things from the Magna Carta. Um, I'll be picking them seemingly at random. Okay, actually at random. Ordinary lawsuits should not follow the royal court around, but should instead be held in a fixed place. That's point 17. That's quite a common sense thing, that if you have a lawsuit, you can't say, oh, you, sorry, guys, you got to go all the way to the north of England now, or, oh, you got to go all the way to Canterbury. So it should be held in one place so that somebody has the ability to be there representing themselves, etc., um, how about this? No sheriff, constable, coroners, or other royal officials are to hold lawsuits that should be held by royal justices. No idea what that means. Um, let's see. Let's see. How about if a no constable or other royal official should take corn or other movable goods from any man without immediate payment unless the seller voluntarily postpones this? I think that's a good one. No sheriff, royal official, or other person shall take horses or carts for transport from any free man without his consent. Nobody wants their carts taken away, guys. Neither we nor any royal official will take wood for our castle or for any purpose without the consent of the owner. So you see, these are strong guards against abuses by the royal class. We like this. I think that's smart. And any good monarch would agree to this. Any tyrant would not. So what about the aristocracy or the republic, if you will, the oligarchy, if it goes bad? Many names for this one. Well, this one, the aristocracy, means the rulership by the best. It's by the most prominent, the most wealthy, the most elite members of society. It's these who gather together to lead their society. Now, there are a couple strengths here. One, because they can come from different parts of society, say some are um, respected judges, others are merchants and traders, etc. They could have specialized knowledge which, which can lead to very effective governance. If we're talking about a, a merchant who does overseas trade, he's going to know how to make laws pertaining to that which are fair and for the common good in a way that a monarch or just Joe Schmo who got elected might not. So it can lead to very effective, intelligent governance. Also, it seems to be a type of filter where these people who have risen to the top of society must have some type of virtue. Although they could be deficient in other places, all things equal, if they were able to rise through what we would hope to be a fair system, these people have something extraordinary about them. Therefore, when they get control of the government, they can use laws to extend the virtues that they have to others, the prudence that they have shown to others. Also, in this type of government, we have an effective voicing of disparate opinions from different groups, and then they must come to compromise. So in a monarchy, if you have, let's say, uh, Sunnis and Shiites, well, if there's only one monarchy, it's one or the other, and the other group feels disenfranchised. Or if we have a democracy, well, so long as there's 51% of one of them, the other part gets silenced. But in an aristocracy, these people can come from different groups and they have to create a type of coalition government, which can mean that multiple voices get heard where they might not have otherwise. Also, this creates a distributed authority which can guard against tyranny. No one person can just run along and, and seize all power. And also, it can bring in representatives um, found to be important in certain spheres, such that they can represent those spheres' interests. We kind of touched on that while talking about the example of a merchant. It may be that if we're just making laws without them in mind, we are hurting our ability to do overseas trade. 
However, if we include those people in government, that can be a way to secure those aspects of the common good. So what are some weaknesses here? Well, one weakness is that collusion between the members of government um, can mean that they're setting the rules of their society for their own private gain. And this certainly does happen. And those who wish to be rulers and try to be rulers, well, that can be the worst type of people, people who are egomaniacs. Um, also, the elite as a class can come to despise the poor. They see themselves as this ascendant group that knows so much better than these poor, simple people. So this can breed arrogance and contempt such that they oppress the poor instead of create a common good, which includes the poor. And finally, because they can come from these different groups and they can have, um, uh, they can be representing uh, disparate and disagreeing populations, this type of government can lead to gridlock or pork barreling. Gridlock when they can't make a decision and pork barreling when they make a decision, but they grease the wheels by sending out special favors. Neither of those are terribly wonderful for society. So here's a few modifications which have been done throughout the ages. One, democratic election of these people. So this creates a, uh, a, uh, a fusion between democracy and the republic, kind of like how we have in a lot of countries, U.S. included. The problem with this is um, this can turn the people who seek to be elected into demagogues, where they just exploit the, the lower class in order to get elected. They tell them what they want to hear and they don't actually have any privileged um, <laughs> privileged wisdom over anybody else. They're they're just they're just there to state their case in a persuasive way to 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 be to what what's that word sophists to be sophists and we don't want to elect sophists. Another modification that we can make, other than trying to include some amount of democratic process in there, is to have safeguards against corruption. Now this isn't. Th that should be obvious, right? But even in the American system, we don't have that many of those. For instance, if you're in a company, let's say you're the CEO of, uh, of 3M, and you happen to know that your new scotch tape is terrible. Um, it, it's going to tank. Um, it's going to, I don't know, catch fire. It'll catch fire and burn your house down. Well, it would be against the law for you to uh, short sell your own company or to start buying up competitive, uh, competitive uh, tape company stocks because you have a type of information which isn't available to the public. You are using your particular position and the knowledge that comes with that to give yourself a, an edge and then to extract money from other people in this trade because they don't actually know what they're buying. And they don't know what they're selling in the case of a short stock. Now, that's against the law, right? Makes sense, sure. Insider trading shouldn't have it. Um, though there's questions about how exactly one would, um, one would enforce such a thing. But we'll leave that one to the side. There's no similar law for people in Congress. So if you know that you are going to put a law that harms uh, tape companies, well, you can go ahead and you can make that trade before um, anybody else knows about it. In fact, if you really wanted to, you could make a few trades and then introduce a law that will benefit your portfolio. And that's legal. And that's, that's messed up. So an obvious change here would be to require people who are in this type of governmental system to put their assets in a blind trust so that they can't actually manipulate them. It's in the hands of a professional manager. And that can do a lot to guard against that type of corruption. So that is certainly a modification that we would need. That means that people can't use their privileged place in society for private financial gain, at least. Also, we can put in place some intelligent rules on how to break gridlock without resorting to just pork barreling and how to incentivize compromise. So there's different ways to, to vote on things which can bring consensus. Um, so and we'll be talking a little bit about that in some of these subsequent sections. Okay, democracy. This is called rule by the poor <laughs> because the poor are typically quite numerous in most societies. This is where popular opinion is the power in charge. And this has some strengths, and of course it has some weaknesses. 
One of the strengths, most people get what they think they want most. Also, it's just intuitively viewed as fair. Next, it may cultivate some civic virtues as people see themselves as truly part of society. It's part of uh, the group of decision makers. And subsequently, it can make people take ownership of that society and treat it as their own. And finally, it can create a strong buy-in. It can create feelings of legitimacy. Legitimacy. I don't know what legitimacy is. Legitimacy. As the as it's built on the consent of the governed most directly. Weaknesses. Um, I'm going to get into this one a little bit. Um, not really a weakness, but kind of a neutral. People think that democracy is like a prerequisite for economic growth. That's a pretty popular idea, especially in the right. I'm not so sure about that. And there's been some studies which have investigated exactly that. So I'll be reading you... Uh, a little bit from, let's see, I think this is an article called The Economist Case for Reaction, Is Democracy Good for Growth? by George Francis. And like all academics, he spends most of his time quoting other academics. <laughs> so he provides a few graphs where he does a, um, a, uh, a plot of different areas, uh, different regions, and whether or not they have a high GDP per capita, and whether or not they have a lot of uh, democracy or not so much democracy. Then he sees if he can get a trend. So I assume he's doing an R-square or something to create that line. Now, in 2005, Garrett Jones used the same data set. Now I'm quoting, right? Uh, but also included national IQ. He found IQ to have a larger posterior inclusion probability than any of the 59 variables employed by Sal E. Martin. That is the, um, that is, the results suggest national IQ had the highest probability of being in the, quote, ideal model. Despite, uh, despite these results, few economists are willing to consider that IQ affects economic growth. But as we shall see, still Many believe that democracy is good for growth. I think that's kind of an interesting point to include, that um, people still believe democracy is good for growth, but if anything, we should be looking at other factors. Um, people don't like to talk about IQ in general, um, but that does seem to be bigger than the effect of democracy. But we got to dig in further because there's even newer stuff. In 2008 and in 2019, economists published meta-analyses of democracy and economic growth, studies that combine all the results of previous papers in their analysis. In the 2008 paper, 84 studies were used and 188 studies were used in the 2019 paper. The first meta-analysis results were, as expected, showing zero effect of being democratic on economic growth. Despite this, the authors claim the results only show democracy has no direct effect on economic growth, but is likely to have indirect effects through other variables that democracy correlates with, such as human capital, lower inflation, lower political instability, and higher levels of economic freedom. While this interpretation is not impossible, it is very unlikely. We have no reason to suppose that the correlation between these factors and democracy is causal, or that causality goes from democracy to these factors. I would add, not the other way around. Besides, is the cross-sectional studies controlling for democracy in the starting year would also account for its effects on human capital in subsequent years, assuming the indirect of, uh, effects of democracy are continuous and not just a one-off benefit. The estimated effect of democracy should partially include its indirect effect already, right? So if you didn't catch that point, basically it's saying, well, maybe it's all these other things that make it grow. And he's retorting, okay, if that were true, then that's included in the fact that there are democracies already, and yet we don't see that they grow faster than non-democracies. Therefore, we've already kept that even throughout our analysis. So the second meta-analysis from 2019 does show a small positive effect for democracy, about a third the effect size of human capital. And it offers the distribution here. Um, the first authors find democracy on average has a partial correlation of 0.04 with economic growth. 
That effect is extremely small, exclamation mark. You don't see those often in any type of literature like this. Moreover, the effect is not robust when the authors only use models that control for human capital, they find no effects of democracy on economic growth. These results are in the plot below, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It finds basically, um, and there's a lot more to this. Yes, I think you guys get the picture. One might think that democracy creates economic growth, but uh, not necessarily. We're throwing that in weaknesses, I guess. Though that should be in neutralness because there's no effect. Alrighty, another weakness. Uh, democracies are more militant. Uh, if you're a democratic country, you're more likely to spend more years in war than rival systems. Also, democracies allow for voters to vote for individual benefits at public costs. So it's very easy to blow out the budget. And I would add that the poor, in many cases, can get too much power over the rich. So whereas the previous one was the rich have too much power over the poor, it can go the other way. So that economic growth is actually stifled. If it's mob rule, it becomes a state of confiscation and not a state of production. And I would add as one more weakness, democracies can have wild shifts in priorities that can make policies erratic. For instance... The war in Afghanistan, everybody was very much pro-war. And then, not long after, they were anti-war. And then soon after that, it was pitched as the good war. And then after that, it was pitched as a bad war and we have to come out. And then tragedy ensued. Um, yeah. All right, so wild shifts in priority. That's the last one. So modifications. What can make this better? One, I would say uh, having a constitution, so barring the worst, uh, the worst impulses of the mob to uh, injure uh, minorities, injure the rich, injure their long-term um, long growth or, uh, or freedom. I would add voter requirements. I know that's unpopular, but we in most nations have something to the effect of uh, felons can't vote. Um, we typically have age limits. Uh, ours is 18. People want to lower it to 16. Others, like myself, think it should be up at, I don't know, 21, 25, something like that. Um, another suggestion has been to only allow uh, net tax payers to vote. I think that's interesting. That aligns incentives. Um, earlier, we had the weakness that people can, can vote themselves money. But if you're the one who actually has to foot the tab, you're going to think twice before you try to expand the scope of government spending. Okay, also, um, having representative democracy seems to help. That's kind of a check against like sheer mob rule, and it gives a few of the benefits of the aristocracy earlier. Also, the use of electors. In our original system, you basically pick the wisest people from your town, and you send them to cast a vote on your behalf. And then those people then elect people. And finally, rank choice voting. That is a... Uh, that's a big one right there. That makes things a lot better. That allows for real consensus candidates instead of people who just are, um, oh, I don't know, fringe. To give an example, uh, imagine if we have two choices of ice cream and you can choose your favorite. And we have the whole nation choosing. One is chocolate and one is rum raisin. Now, there are a few people who really love rum raisin, but in general, most people would be happy with chocolate ice cream. It might not be their favorite, but hey, chocolate ice cream's pretty good. Now, in a, in a, in a race between the popularity of these two ice creams, chocolate is going to win. But what if we didn't have just these two flavors? We had 100 flavors. And chocolate gets drowned out because, well, nobody wants just chocolate if you can have chocolate peanut butter, chocolate fudge, chocolate Oreo. You can have chocolate with uh, something else in there, right? So it, it gets split between all of these. And it could be that good old rum raisin wins, but it only wins with a plurality, not an outright majority. It turns out that 7% of people have that as their favorite. But everything else got below 7%, and now it could win. That's how a lot of primaries work um, when electing candidates and Democrats and Republicans, for example. So we can push people towards these fringe groups, which 
a small amount of very excited people really like. And then everybody else is disappointed. It would have been better for the vast majority of people if they just got chocolate. But chocolate's not going to win when there's that many options. So what rank choice voting does is you rank all of those ice creams. And then the ones with the lowest ranking get knocked off. And then depending on the system, there's a re-vote or you use those votes again in the rankings. Everything shifts up. And then it consolidates down what most people would be most happy with. Um, yeah, I think rank choice is a no-brainer. Okie dokie. Now we're going to talk a little bit about what Plato, what Aquinas, what Aristotle, and what Augustine said about this stuff. But first, we are going to take a brief break. See, I told you it was a short break. All right, where were we? Plato. So we're going to talk about what Plato thought. Which do you think he preferred? Well, if you've ever heard of his book, The Republic, well, it's it's The Republic. There you go. Alrighty, so in this book, he makes the comparison of a city to a person. Now, there are three parts. There's the rational, there's the spirited, and then there's the appetite. Think of this as the, the head, the heart, and the belly. Now, if you are a Catholic, even if you aren't, if you've ever made the sign of the cross you know that you go from your head down to your belly across your heart. What you're doing is you're making the mark of Jesus Christ on these three parts of you, your heart, your appetite, and your mind. So, by way of the most brief synopsis the world has ever seen, let's go over a little bit of the Republic. So, Plato regards the rule and the direction as the role of the rational soul. The spirited part, the heart, helps to implement this, and the appetitive part is that which desires the necessities of life, like food and drink and housing and all sorts of things like that, things that we just desire. So the spirited part has desires too, but those would relate a little bit more to things like honor. In society, he believes that the guardian class ought to rule, and these are people of wisdom, of music, of learning. They don't get tied down with private property. Um, and uh, they should, in theory, have the well-being of society as a whole, as their focus. Now, they can make war, but they also have to be the ones that are involved in fighting it. Imagine that. Imagine if, when we had a president or a congress that declared war, they had to have some skin in the game. They had to go to combat, too. And speaking of combat, the next group are called the auxiliaries. They are that spirited portion. They bring about the decisions of the guardians. These would be people like the soldiers and maybe the police. And finally, we have the makers. Those are people who are needed to create all the desired things of society. So what should we take from, from his ideas in the, Republic, in the Republic? I'd say a few things. One is that there is, in fact, a right ordering both for ourselves and for our city. Next, that skin in the game is, in fact, quite important. I'd add that incentives must be heeded, and uh, justice is higher order than production. Those are two other lessons. We see how he sets up those incentives. Guardians can't own things because we don't want them to turn their power and privilege to simply self-aggrandizing or simply um, debasing themselves by focusing only on, uh, on simple pleasures instead of the, the high things like justice and the common good. And I mentioned it, but we should go back to it. Justice is higher order than production. I think that's often lost in our, our, our market-driven uh, societies. Yes, production is extraordinarily important, but if you gain the whole world and lose your soul, what profit is that? Justice is very important. If we are, are meant to choose between um, bringing about justice and making more money, we should focus on justice, and that's better for society as a whole. Further points, I would say, he stresses the importance of education, particularly for the rulers. And he promotes a censoring of false ideas, which is something we're typically allergic to in the West, but I think is legit. 
the world would be a better place if we prevented all of our elites, say, in all public universities, from ever learning the ideas of Marx. The world would be better. Um, so that's something we can learn from Plato. That falsehood, you have no right to falsehood. And of course, there's issues of who gets to determine that, but that's a separate issue. He also stresses teaching this guardian class through the youth use of myth and through the use of legend and stories. And I think that one's really interesting. Historically, at least in the U.S., we have this um, we have this hero worship of, of great people, legitimately great people, like George Washington um, and the founding fathers. You're asked to buy into this certain myth of the founding, to be inculcated with these virtues through the story of, of the revolution against uh, against England about the um, promotion of freedom against tyranny. So we do this too, at least we have historically, and that helps to bind these people into a common history to channel them towards these common goods. All right, so Plato, he goes for a republic out of these three. So what's Aquinas go for? What does he like best? Well, Aquinas likes the monarchy. So he claims that unity is better reached by having one person ultimately in power. Now, I might respectfully disagree on this one, that this is the source of unity, though in some readings I could see it as the cause of conformity. Here I would lean on good old St. Augustine, who famously points out in the City of God, accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glorifies in itself, the latter in the Lord. I believe that common love is what creates community. That's what creates, well, community simply means common unity. <laughs> so that's what we're talking about here. If you have an English car club, what creates the unity? Is it the fact that they're all 60-year-old white guys with mustaches? Or the fact that all of their cars are green? Is it the presence of a single leader? No, I think what creates this common unity is the love of English cars. The same is true of... We could insert any example. Say a book club. That's the common love of, of idle chatter. Or a gardening club. That's the common love of, of plants. All right. So I think he has some amount of point here, and we should always take his opinion um, uh, very heavily. However, I think his argument about unity is a little undercut by what Augustine might say. Now, the church doesn't endorse a particular form of government. I think it's important to note. So, uh, although Aquinas says it, it doesn't mean that the, the church must be saying it too. Um, I don't think that the church needs to be supporting a particular form. Um, each form, if its members have a common love, will be unified. Each, if its rulers regard the common good over self-interest, can be just. That's not to say that we ought to rely simply on the virtue of those in power. Instead, we ought to keep a very careful eye on the incentives that are in place. Incentives drive behavior. People Expecting people to work against their own self-interest is like expecting a log to float up river. Which brings us to, in the, the Aquinas and uh, monarchy kind of movement, we have the Catholic monarchists. Yes, there are people running around and reacting against the liberal enlightenment ideals, some of which are false, but many of which are not. And I'll make, a, I'll make really one big point addressing these folks, people who are, are promoting monarchy today. Let me ask you, how on earth does one start a monarchy? You see, uh, there are places with, with liberal forms of government now, and maybe you can find a few that have monarchies, but those have dwindled down. Those are vestigial organs of government at this point. I, I would say that in many places throughout Europe, people, if they have a king, don't even know his name. <laughs> so I don't think we can resurrect that type of monarchy in a way which would be true to the historic way that monarchies were in fact instantiated chief reason is that monarchies are organic. They're old. They're, they relate to family. Returning to a monarchy 
in the modern world is like trying to return New York City to a woodland. The woodland took millions of years to develop. It had to move through periods of ecological secession so that so that what the end state was was reliant on many different states before it. Even if it were true that the woodlands were better than the city, the change just can't be undone. And the power struggle to become a monarch would be a filtering mechanism with, that would drive the most vicious people to the top and cement them in power. Now, if you're one of the Catholic monarchists and you think you have an awesome defense of this movement, write to me. I will read it on the air at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. But to me, I just I just don't think we can institute something which is based um, so deeply in like the organic uh, movements of, of people in a, a very historical manner. A lot of monarchies begin because there's the uh, there's a father of a family and then he becomes a grandfather. And then these families are interconnected with other families and there's eventually a lead family. And this lead family is one which helped to coordinate the other ones that, that actually serve some type of important role. And then in time, this whole area grows in population and that one family is con continues at the top and other important families represent nobles. It's a very enculturated historical way of getting a leader. You can't just do it all over again. Not, not unless we want to completely destroy our society and slowly let it grow again. Like you, like you regrow a forest. Okay, so there we go. We have people who promote monarchy. We have those like Plato who would support a republic. What would our friend Aristotle want? Well, it's been a minute since I've read the politics, um, but Aristotle is vi Mr. Via Media. He likes right down the middle. You'd think he would support a Republican. He says some things which are kind of Republic-y, but it seems that he promotes the rule by the middle class. He wishes for both the rich and the poor's interest to be preserved, and he sees the middle class as the best rulers as a result. He cares about law, and what I would describe it as is he seems to promote a constitutional uh, democratic society, at least at the level of the polis, which he's principally operating at. I wonder if we were to ask him about a, a nation the size of, say, France or England or the U.S., if he changed his mind. I suspect he would, but at least at the level of the polis, where it's possible to have that type of democratic cooperation, he thinks that should exist, um, subject to law, and uh, yeah, there you go. See, he's in that camp. We have another thinker. What about St. Augustine? Well, let me read you a few quotes. Where there is no justice, there is no commonwealth. Remove justice, and what are kingdoms but gangs of criminals on a large scale? And what are criminal gangs but petty kingdoms? <laughs> For Augustine, government of any form is only legitimate when serving God. Here's one of my favorite quotes. An unjust law is no law at all. Augustine would judge a government by its pragmatic delivery of justice, its relation to the city of God. For Augustine, Paul's writings of in Romans, Romans 13, I believe, is as much of a test of whether or not something is a government as it is a description of its duties. And let's read what Paul says here. Let everybody be subject to the government, the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the ones in authority? Do what's right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now, I think this is often read as, oh, all governments are great and they're all God's servants. But the more Augustinian view would say that to the extent that they are God's servant, to the extent that they bring wrath upon the wrongdoer, to the extent that they reward the righteous, they are governments. 
to the extent that they deviate from that, they are gangs of criminals. Paul goes on, Therefore, it is necessary to submit to these authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of consequence. This is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Again, if you owe the taxes, if you owe the revenue, if you owe respect, if you owe honor. You owe that to governance, to governors, because they spend their full time governing. If they spend their full time being, oh, what do we call them? Um, gangs of criminals on a large scale. <laughs> well, then you don't owe them that. Um, all right. So if I was Augustine, I would say to the question of which is best, the monarchy, the aristocracy, or the democracy, I would say, I don't care. I'm chiefly a citizen of the city of God. I don't care about the city of man in the line of Cain. All right. What does your favorite podcast host like best? Well, um, that's hard to say. A lot rests on the structural uh, constraints in place, the, the type of uh, people governed. I know that's kind of a boring answer, but in different times and places, I would support different governments. Small, well-educated Greek polices um, with a strong middle class and a cultural ethos that values wisdom. Um, sure, I'm with, I'm with good old Uncle Aristotle on this one. Let's, let's go a type of democracy. Um, let's say a cultural diverse, a culturally diverse region with uh, internal tensions and strife. Well, I might recommend a republic, a republic of some type, so that the multiple leaders of the various sects must come to some type of compromise, and this avoids um, permanent alienation, which would come from monarchy, and it avoids crushing minorities uh, through democracy. And finally, if we found a culture that had organically developed a monarchy and a nobility, and it has strong legal protections for its citizens and subsidiarity built into its government, then, well, sure, I like that too. Let's keep it going. Um, and finally, I'd say that mixed governments are pretty cool too. Of course, the U.S. system comes to mind. It has elements of each one of those. Our executive branch is kind of like a monarchy. Our, our legislative branch has elements of both democracy. Uh, we elect these people. And it has uh, plenty of elements of the aristocracy where we, um, where we have these elites who, who rule. So I think that's a good idea. I think that combines a lot of the... Um, a lot of the advantages, but hey, you know, I'm also open to it <laughs> combining a lot of the disadvantages. We, we get a lot of that too. Now, I promised I would give you a brief sketch of, uh, of what I would think is best. So I'm um, not going to get into everything. I've actually written um, kind of at length on this, but I won't bore you with the details. Here we go. Here we go. Here's what I would propose. It all starts with the um, with the executive branch. That's where the action happens in, in my situation. So we have popularly elected mayors, and they're elected using that rank choice method that I described earlier. The mayor then appoints a staff over various aspects of government. For instance, there would be one leader over security, one over transportation, one over education, etc., and those groups have their, um, and those leaders have their power and their funding delegated by the mayor. State governments are then pulled from the local governments and in the following way. All of the like-kind leaders of each part of local government and the mayors gather together to talk over and to finish what is at this point a multi-month investigation of one another. At the end of this convention, each will submit a ranking of the performance of all the others, given the challenges that were presented to them and the resources that they had to tackle those. And the rankings will be averaged together to create a wisdom of the crowds ranking composite. So all the education leaders will meet together in the local conference of, uh, of education leaders, say, inside of the state of Virginia. And then they can't rank themselves as number one, but they can rank everybody else. And they look around. They can ask for any documents, any anything whatsoever. 
and they're looking for who is the best because if they get ranked one and in all the other conferences, that same locality gets ranked very highly, then they have a shot at going to the state level. And everybody in these conferences have a vested interest in a very competent person being able to go to the state level so that their job is easier and so that next time their ranking can be higher and maybe they can ascend. And for other reasons, we add stuff. Anyways, meanwhile, um, we have this conference going, but we also have a ballot that goes out to voters. And voters would be people over a minimum age, say 21. I do think it's important that they are next net taxpayers because we want to align incentives properly. We don't want to create an avenue for people to put costs on others and benefits um, only on themselves. I don't think that's right. So if you're a net taxpayer, you are covering the burden of your society. Even if that's just net tax by um, $1, <laughs> well, you get to have a say. But if you're being supported by society, I don't think that you should be one of the people making the rules for society as that can create a spiral with more and more spending on, um, on these people. And that's not good for long-term health. All right. And of course, no history of felonies. So these people will not be given a ballot of people to choose. Instead, they'll be given a list of the parts of government and they'll be asked to assign priority to the importance of each. So let's say you're in Alabama and you know what? You have a pickup truck. You don't care about the roads. You can get anywhere you want. You drive through a field, but you do care about education. You know, you're ranking number 50 out of all the states. So we care about education. So in your, in your ballot, when you're looking at, at uh, priorities, you might put all 100 points in education. Meanwhile, if you're in the state of Pennsylvania, where every road is off-roading, um, where potholes are the size of hot tubs, you might put a lot of those points in transportation. So, the information of these two is then multiplied together to give a score for each local government. So, it is the, the importance as defined by the citizens in the ballot. It is the times the competence as understood by those who are evaluating their peers, people who do the same job as they do. And that's all put into one score for the local government. Now, the victorious uh, local government um, goes to the state level. And then we have a similar process applied to the states in order to reach the federal level. So let's, um, let's ask the obvious question. What happens if these people are corrupt, if they all conspire in some type of way? Let's say the, um, the uh, guys from the New Jersey um, government all go around and say, hey, yo, I'm going to hook you up here. You know, I'm, you get me up to federal level. You wouldn't believe this stuff. I'm going to come down. You, your life's going to be so easy. Well, there's two options. One, their persuasion works. The corruption works. They convince everybody to put them at rank number one, and they hope that the population will assign their points such that, that, that they ascend to the top. Um, if it works, if they can do that, well, then they get to federal level. You're right. Sure, the corruption worked. Well, at least this first round. The question is, what happens next? Do they govern well? Are they able to fulfill their promises to the people who ranked them number one and let them go to the top level? If the answer is no, well, next time somebody goes and tries to does, do that same thing, they're going to say, whoa, 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 you need to prove it. You need to prove that you can benefit my state. Tell me how you're going to do it because you're telling all the states that you're going to benefit all the states. And I don't think that's possible. So now the majority of them are going to hold them to account and say, you need to prove to me that you can benefit the majority of us in a way which is balanced across all the other roles of government. Now, if they can do that, great. They deserve rank one. That's what we want. We want people to be making a case that they can benefit the vast majority of states, the vast majority of the country um, by their actions um, at the federal level. And again, if they can't do that, if they can't prove that they're going to do that, then this type of uh, trying to uh, hobnob and get to the top just isn't going to work.
Okie dokie. But there's a lot of uh, headwinds for this and other types of corruption. One is very strong punishments for fraud. And the like-kind officials can sniff it out pretty quickly. Let's say you're an education uh, leader at the state level. If you see some test scores coming out of another um, another state and they look a little fishy, your, pro- your office is probably going to be really good at detecting those falsehoods. And you have a strong incentive to do so because if you can knock them out because you prove fraud or corruption, well, guess what? There's one less person in the ranking that ups your chances. So we've aligned incentives for honesty. And also, the whole government moves up as a group. Government's about trade-offs, and this captures this reality. You can't just have one or two things which you're doing well. You have to be good across all the range of things that you do. Plus, that voter rank is not controlled through corrupt politicians. That's kind of a factor that you don't know until it comes out. So in order to be corrupt, you would have to be very corrupt um, and very convincing and uh, not get yourself knocked out um, in every one of these conferences. And you would have to get the rankings up in the ways which will make you benefit from the voter ranking, which you don't know until it comes out. So I think it has very strong abilities to prevent that type of corruption, which we're typically worried about with things like um, aristocracies and whatnot. Um, but we do get the benefit of this um, wide amounts of competence that we, we see in an aristocracy. Now, once they ascend to this level, um, it's a, I mean, this is a rule by meritocracy. We have people who, um, uh, who can make decisions quickly, quickly like a monarch would. Um, so the, uh, and so we have the monarchy, not all of the advantages. We don't have all that long-term stability that we could change that with the amount of time that they're in power, but we certainly have that, uh, strict hierarchy and we have the very clear, um, roles and responsibilities so that people can respond quickly to things. All right. Do we have some of the benefits from democracy? Well, I would say that we do. Um, one of those is that it's, uh, it's a lot of the formulas populated by the desires of the population. And also, I think I mentioned at the beginning, that the way that the mayors initially get in place is through that popular rank choice voting. So they're the ones who then choose everybody else. So we have at the very beginning of our system, we have the input of the people. And then to drive them to the top, we have the priorities of the people. Um, I would add that laws can be struck down by the courts at each level, so the local, at the local, state of the state, um, if they violate either the Constitution or a list of enumerated rights, which I think is a good idea to have. Um, I don't know exactly how we would have judge secession, but I kind of like the idea of judges who are um, appointed by a mayor and then elected at least at the federal level. Um, because I think that level is the place where it's most likely to have tyranny from a federal level. Therefore, it's most important to have some type of democratic check in the protection of individual rights. All right. So uh, as far as uh, specific things, I think it'd be cool to throw into a competi- in, into a constitution that public services can be paid for by government, but not run by government. I think that it's our right in some cases to fund things publicly, but it is rare that the government runs them efficiently. So making a divide between those two. In regard to taxes, I've said in other places in this podcast that consumption and property taxes are the best overall. They're the most fair and they're the best for economic growth. I think that we should limit it to just that. And finally, I like the idea that unbalanced budgets at the state and local level require selling of some of their territory to neighboring governments. So we have a type of survival of the fittest. That would be cool. And finally, in that conference that I talk about, there's such thing as the Delphi method Um, and that can help us with the expert um, ranking. Basically, when they get together in order to facilitate these very large conversations, we have something kind of like Reddit in a way. Basically, arguments are in text form, 
and they're anonymous. They're sent out to five random representatives, and they're voted either up or down based on, is this a strong argument? And if it's voted up, then it appears to a block of, say, 50. And if it's voted up again, it can go to all 100 reps. So this can allow... Um, this can allow strong arguments to be the ones that are paid attention to, and it can kind of clean up the, the repeats or clean up the ones which just aren't terribly useful. So if you have a bomb of information that you need to send out, you don't have to rely on just waiting your turn. You can send that immediately, and it gets uh, filtered through that process. So I think that's a strong process for um, large-scale um, cooperation with uh, arguments and uh, discussions like that. So that's what I would suggest. All right, there you go. That's the basic rundown. Um, let me know if you think that that type of government would work. I think it has a variety of uh, benefits, and it should curb a lot of the problems that we saw in some of the other ones. Uh, I didn't mention some other groups, uh, some different offices in it, but hey, whatever. If you're really interested, email me and email me with any comments. I appreciate you guys listening and uh, always appreciate your input. So contact me at thegordianot101 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, guys.